The text for the sermon is taken from the gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. On the central coast of what we now call Turkey, laid an ancient city named Priene. It was a deep harbor port, situated at the foot of a steep rocky cliff and looking out over the whole bay. It gained prominence when Alexander the Great redesigned the city to be the exemplar of Greek urban design and technology. Despite being built on a steep slope, the engineers and architects seemed to master the environment and build this tight city on a perfect grid, each building the same height, the same size. And though the city never grew to be very large, its 6,000 inhabitants were indeed quite wealthy. Most of the homes were inlaid with marble, and there was indoor plumbing in every house with running water, even in the bathrooms. In the middle of the town lay the agora, or the marketplace, which was the center of civic activity, the center of commercial activity, that's where the market was, and it was also the center of religious activity, because there stood, looking out down upon the whole town, was the Temple of Apollo, built by Alexander himself. Much later, in 9 BC, a lengthy inscription carved on a stone tablet about two and a half feet tall was placed in the middle of this town, in the marketplace. The inscription declared the good news, the gospel, in Greek, the euangelion, that a savior had been born who was to bring peace to the whole world. But if you caught that date right, 9 BC, that's not the declaration of our gospel. That's not the declaration of Jesus Christ. Listen to this inscription. It says this, Providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit mankind, sending him as our savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war, and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, he has surpassed all previous benefactors, and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. Providence has ordered his birthday of the god Augustus, which is now the beginning of the good tidings, the gospel, for the world that came by reason of him. Written just a few years before Jesus' own birth, this gospel declares the wonders of Augustus, the man so powerful, so majestic, that he's called a god. For he brought an end to the civil war of the Roman Empire. He heralded a time of economic prosperity, political peace, and cultural renewal. The inscription honors Augustus's birth, and it goes on to declare that the start of the calendar, the start of counting of all time, will now begin from Augustus's birthday. 
It signals that this is now the new era of how all of history is to be defined. But Augustus's political promises, like all political promises, were temporary. And his political power, like all political power, is finite. The Roman peace, the Pax Romana, which was really predicated upon oppressive violence and power, slowly degenerated into fanatical tyrants who were terrified of losing their grip on their glimmering scepter. It is with this background that we are to read the start of the gospel that we heard today from Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see, Mark's beginning of his gospel would not have been lost on his audience, who were familiar with such pronouncements as the one I read you from this town of Priene. He is now declaring a new beginning. Yes, that's hearkening back to Genesis, but it's also countering the idea that Augustus and all that he stood for was the center point of history. Augustus is not the center point of history. Jesus Christ is the center of history. And so to prove his point, Mark brings in suddenly John the Baptist onto the stage of his gospel, this strange and intense young man who is preparing Israel and the readers of the gospel to encounter this God-man, Jesus. John is calling out in the wilderness for Israel to repent because one must prepare for the coming of the Messiah, which according to Mark, that's the final act of history because it involved both judgment and the final coming of the Holy Spirit upon earth. So John calls all of Israel and Mark has this great exaggerated phrase that all of Judea, all of Jerusalem comes out to visit him by the Jordan River. They want to see who is this prophet for whom they've been waiting. And Israel, that's not wrong. Israel truly has been waiting for a prophet. It's been 300 years since the writing of Malachi, the last official prophet in the canon. And they've been waiting for another one who might embody the prophets of the old and call them back. In Mark's narrative, it is Jesus who comes to John. It is Jesus who repents on behalf of all Israel. Jesus who is baptized on behalf of all Israel. And now the presence of God descends from the heavens onto Jesus just as a dove descends from the sky. The heavens open up and the spirit descends. Mark here is purposely echoing a a famous prophecy which his readers would have known from Isaiah 64 which says that the heavens will be rent, rent open when God comes down and visits the earth. In that context, Isaiah is referring to an apocalyptic event, an earth-shattering event, a history-changing event. All of this is setting up the gospel laid in front of us and really a choice set in front of us. Are we going to listen to the gospel of Augustus or are we going to listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
which gospel will you worship? Will you kneel before Augustus or will you kneel before Jesus? The epistle set for this morning by the Apostle Paul to the Romans kind of lays out then what is the worship that the people who are living in the gospel of Jesus Christ, what is the worship that they should live? Last week, Father Glenn helped us understand that the purpose of worship is not just to get a good feeling. And sometimes worship, especially the specific worship we do here, it can give us good feelings. You don't have to feel guilty if you feel good in worship. But Father Glenn's point is that true worship, it's, it has to be deeper than our own feelings. Right? Because if the, if the purpose of worship is the feelings we get out of it, then worship is just inward look, looking. It's just self-serving. But we are created to worship God Almighty. And, thank God, he's graciously told us how to worship him. The epistle, the epistle readings for the first three weeks in Epiphany, they're all coming from the same chapter or two chapters in Romans, chapter 12 and chapter 13. And we're reading it sequentially. And this is where Paul lays out what should Christian worship, or as our translation calls it, what should Christian service look like? He writes, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. I want you to realize that this is first and foremost a deeply sacramental statement. Paul is calling us to live Eucharistic lives. And through the power of Jesus Christ, we can now offer our lives as a thankful remembrance to God. That's the type of worship that Adam lost. But now we regain in Christ. Paul calls it our reasonable service. The word that Paul uses for service, this is what Father Glenn was talking about last week, uh, is, is also the same word we use for worship. It's latria, a Greek word that signified the worship due to God at sacred services, such as at the temple. And the word reasonable is the Greek word logikon, which is the stem logos, the same word that we translate as the word. In the beginning was the word, the logos. Reasonable is not a bad translation, but it can kind of sometimes blur the vision that Paul is connecting our true worship that is given to us by the word. This points us to the Eucharist itself, where the word, the logos, made flesh, gives himself to us, and we are united to him. Listen to our liturgy from the Book of Common Prayer. And here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls, and bodies to be a reasonable, that's the logicon, the, the, from the logos, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee, humbly beseeching thee that we and all others who shall be partakers of this holy communion may worthily receive the most precious body and blood of thy Son, Jesus Christ, 
be filled with thy grace and heavenly benediction and made one body with him that he might dwell in us and we in him. This is true worship. We are offering ourselves up as a living sacrifice because we are united to Christ and fed by his body and blood. At the same time, Paul's stress in Romans 12 on worship, it extends not to just what we do here at the Eucharist, but what flows from the Eucharist in our own lives. We now have a new life, a life hidden in Christ, but to give over every aspect of our life, which is our calling, that's really difficult. And so Paul urges the Romans not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewal of their minds. Our translation in the King James uses two verbs that share the same stem, to conform and to transform, and they're used as opposites. In the Greek, it's slightly different. The two words as opposites come from very, very different stems. And so the word conform has to do with just an outward form or a fashion, meaning that the world's worship, right? don't be conformed to the world, don't put on the world's fashion, because the world's worship, powerful as it may seem, is only a fleeting fashion. But the word transform has at, at its root the stem morphe, like metamorpha. This means a change of our essential being, our nature or form. And this is what Paul calls us to, since it is what we receive at our baptism and then are called to live out for the rest of our lives. What this looks like, what living our life in worship looks like, it's going to be different for every person because each of you are called to be a part within the body. And so each of you are going to live out that call within your vocation. And yet at the same time, we are all caught up into the single calling of the body, which is to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the advice that Paul gives. Here's what your life should look like as an outcome of your essential change. At the heart of your worship is a humble love that seeks to give thanks to God and to honor those around you. So let's look at the epistle. Listen to the phrases that call us to love God. Paul writes, cleave to that which is good. And who is good but God? Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Continue instant in prayer. All of these are pointing our lives to God. And then Paul follows, here's what your life should look like to your neighbor. Let love be without dissimulation. Be kindly affectioned one to another in brotherly love. Distribute to the necessity of the saints. Be given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you. Be of the same mind one toward another. Rejoice with them that do rejoice. But don't forget also to weep with them that weep. 
What we see in Paul's epistle is not just a list of moral rules, right? This is a description of our way of living. It's a life transformed by the word so that we are able to offer our own life up to God as a sacrifice. Worship, then, is our entire life. It's living out the effects of our new position as the sons and daughters of God. Remember when Paul was taken by the Athenians and they wanted to know, what in the world is this God you're talking about? Come up, we'll bring you. And he went to the Mars Hill. Mars Hill is one of the main hills in Athens, sitting right underneath the big temple there. And he talks to them, and this is what he says. He says, God has made one blood of all nations of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. He has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in God we live, we move, we have our being. True worship is offered to God in the Eucharist perfectly and then lived out as our lives become caught up in the eternal worship of God. Every gospel demands a certain type of worship. And you know this. Whether it's Hail Caesar or we the people, there is an allegiance that is demanded. The early martyrs knew this all too well. They gave up their life instead of offering incense to Caesar. They knew that their own person, what they did with their bodies, could be a living sacrifice offered to Caesar or offered to God. And that same call of following the gospel of Augustus or following the gospel of Jesus Christ is the same call that stands before you each and every day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.